Hello again. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open up, up your Bibles to Psalm 107. Psalm 107. If you have a phone or a device of some sort that also can access the Bible, open up your Bible app and open up to Psalm 107. That's where we're going to be this morning. You'll be able to follow along with me. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you as we have just sung for your word which holds firm through the ages, Lord. We thank you that as we open up your word that it can restore our soul, that it can enlighten our eyes, that it can make wise the simple, Lord. We thank you for your word that reveals the truths about your son, Jesus Christ, the only name under heaven through which we can be saved. We thank you that it can make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we open up your word this morning, we pray that it will illumine our hearts and our minds to your work and your activity in this world on our behalf. It's in your name we pray these things now. Amen. Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Would you describe the last six months as a season of thanksgiving? Is that the phrase you would use? Maybe you've benefited from some of the stimulus check in this season, maybe some unforeseen circumstances, and that was a lifeline, and you'd be thankful for that. Maybe in this season you have had some uh, unexpected extra family time, and maybe that you can be thankful for. Or maybe you now get to work from home and you don't have that dreaded rush hour commute. We kind of laugh right now because I don't think this is what most people are talking about. I hear, I just spoke to somebody yesterday, they said, I wish I could just press a reset button. I wish 2020 could just be over with. I'm ready to be done. I see more and more people who in this season, uh, they would not describe thankfulness as their demeanor or as their attitude. They're just ready for it to be over. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And in verse 2 it says this, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south, the redeemed are those who God has drawn back to himself, who has restored from all places. And it tells us from east, from west, from north, and from south. And while that could easily be misconstrued as a geographic reference, and certainly God gathers people from north, south, east, and west, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, in Psalm 107, east, west, north, and south is speaking of all the kinds of people and all the manners in which God gathers people to himself. So as we continue to read the psalm, you'll pick up on this word, some. Verse 4, some. Verse 10, some. Verse 17, some. Verse 23, some. There's going to be four case studies, four examples that we can follow along with of how God gathers and redeems people out of trouble. Let's look at these four case studies. Verse 4. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. 
hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Some wandered. Wanderers is what you might call them. Some wandered. The word in Hebrew for wandered, it means they have left the path. But in Hebrew, he, he doubles down on this reality because it's not just that they have left the path. They find themselves in desert, and he modifies it, desert wastelands. The deserts were a known commodity. There were cities. There was paths between those cities, and those paths traversed deserts. It wasn't unknown to be in the desert. And yet, in Psalm 107, he adds that term wastelands because wastelands is those vast spaces where there's no markers and where there's no roads. And so we have wanderers who have left the path and they now find themselves in a desert wasteland with no direction, with no path, and no idea how to get home. They could find no city to dwell in. The wanderers are those people with no direction, no purpose, no path to follow. They a lot of times have a a hard time staying motivated at any one thing for any enduring period of time. They struggle to stay committed to something. They're always longing for a place to feel at home, but they never quite get there. They might settle for a moment, and it might look like they're connecting, and they're getting in, and they're, they're beginning to find home, but then in, in a moment's notice, they're off on a different path, in a new place, in a new location. Some wandered in deserts, and they're now hungry and thirsty, and their soul faints within them. And what we see is this astounding reality is that there's a refrain that happens in every single one of these stories. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. God leads wanderers home. This is what God does. He led them, we're told, by a straight way. Uh, God's straight way is not always the most direct path from A to B. It's not always the shortest distance from A to B. I'm reminded of Israel in the wilderness. Okay, they, they walk out of Egypt, they march across the Red Sea, and then, you guys know the story, they wander for 40 years in the desert before coming to the promised land. I can assure you that is not the shortest path from Egypt to Canaan. God's straight way is his right way, the manner in which he brings us from where we are to where he will have us. It's like when you go to one of those cities that has one-way streets. Have you ever been there? Those are fun. And you pull up to the street, and you're like, you can see your destination, and it's like one block south, but that sign says, one way. And you got to go one block north. One block west, two blocks south, one block east. And you take this kind of roundabout way in order to get to your destination. And sometimes this is the manner in which God leads us. He takes us in his straight way, which to us might seem all the long way. But he leads us by a straight way, and we're told, to a 
city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul. Their longing, he satisfies. The hungry soul, they were fainting, they were hungry, they were thirsty. The hungry soul, he fills with good things. Let them what? Thank the Lord. God's steadfast love is the springboard to gratitude. It's the springboard to thanksgiving. Let's look at the next group. Some sat in a darkness and in shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God, and they spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. The description here is palpable. In darkness, in the shadow of death, you get the sense that there's a prison surrounding these people. And I would call these people the rebel. The rebel. We're told something about them. There's a reason that they end up in this dungeon. There's a reason that they end up in darkness. There's a reason that they end up in chains. There's a reason they end up in prison. And it says it very clearly here. For they rebelled against the words of God. They spurned the counsel of the Most High. They rejected God's word. You guys know the story of the prodigal son. He spurns the counsel of culture. He rejects his father. He takes his inheritance. He runs off and he blows it all in lavish and what we're told in Scripture, reckless living. Somewhere in there, he bought a Lamborghini and he crashed it. This is the rebel. He's not going to do things the way God has laid out for him. He has his own way. And something about this rebellion creates a prison of its own. The circumstances of our rebellion will imprison us ultimately. You guys, the prodigal son finds himself in his own prison, doesn't he? He's sitting at the, the pig pen. And he looks in that trough, and he's like, maybe I'll eat some of that. Have you guys ever been to Cook's Farm Dairy? Okay, I saw a few hands. Just drive up there. Seymour Lake Road, it's like 20 minutes from here. Okay, walk in. Don't get your ice cream first, or eat your ice cream first, and then go there. Okay, walk past all the cows. Just ignore the cows for a moment. I know they make great ice cream, and we enjoy it, and it's great and wonderful. We love it. Okay, get past the cows on the back side, on the right-hand side. You'll get to the pig pen. As you get close, you'll know it. You can smell it. Walk up and look at those troughs. We'll call it dirty water is what I'll call it. It's worse than that. And it's got some like food fragments floating in it. And on more than one occasion, um, I have watched one pig pee in it while another drinks. That's a prison, guys. A prison of his own making. God bowed them down. It's a hard labor. So that when they came to this point... There was no one to help them when 
they fell. And so we read here. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and into the, sh- in, out of, and the shadow of death, and he burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters doors of bronze. He cuts into the bars of iron. The prodigal son is sitting at the pig slop, and he thinks for a moment, okay, if only I go back to my father's home, then maybe I can be the lowest servant because the lowest servant even eats better than this. And so he decides in a moment, I'm going to go back there. And he goes back. And you know the story because it's famous. It's one of the most famous Christian stories. The father runs out to him, wraps him in a hug, says, kill the fattened calf, let's celebrate, and we're going to have a party. That's the moment where his chains are broken, is it not? That's a chain-breaking moment. God frees rebels into his light. He redeems them from darkness. He breaks their bonds. He splits open the doors. This is God's activity in the world. Let's look at the next group. Some were fools through their sinful ways. And because of their iniquities, they suffered affliction, and they loathed any kind of food. So they drew near to the gates of death. Fools. Fools. They're kind of cut from the same cloth as the rebel, but there's a sense when you get to the fool that they think they can actually get away with it. If you look back in Psalm 94, we read this about the fool. Understand, O dullest of people, fools, when will you be wise? Listen to these next words. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines nations, Does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord himself, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. There's something about the fool that they think they can actually get away with their sinful iniquity. They don't know the affliction that it will bring. And it may simply be that their sin, unlike the rebel who has the obvious sin that leads to imprisonment and its own kind of death, that their sin is that kind of palatable sin in society. It's the one that people can kind of hide, pretend like it's not that big of a deal. Fools are increasingly adept at gathering teachers and preachers to themselves who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear, who can gloss over their sin instead of call it what it actually is. It's sin. They think they can get away with it, but they fail to realize that God hears That he who created the eyes sees. 
that God knows their thoughts. And yes, even our thoughts can be sinful. God knows the fool. And the fool's not going to get away with anything. Verse 19. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Have you noticed this refrain? No more certain reality in this psalm. Okay, it's already popped up three times. We're going to get it a fourth in a moment. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he what? Delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, and he delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Did you catch this? For the fools, what does God do? He heals them, what? By his Word. The Word of God is all-powerful. By, by the Word of God, all creation comes into existence. The Word of God heals the fool. You see, there's something about the fool. The fool doesn't just need a doctor to treat their symptoms. The fool actually needs a teacher to transform their mind. They need the word of God to come over them in a way by the power of the Spirit so that they understand the manner in which they are to walk and to live in this world. The fool is healed by God's word. I don't have enough time today to go into everything that this might signify, but think for a moment about what Jesus says when he says, man does not live by what? Bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus later says, I am the bread of life. And in John chapter 1, earlier in this same book where he says in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life, in John chapter 1, we learn that he is the word who was made flesh, who dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word through whom we are healed. He is the bread through whom we are nourished and strengthened and lifted up. He sent out His Word and healed them and so delivered them from their own destruction. Verse 22 is interesting. Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. That seems so insignificant, okay? I'm just going to be honest, okay? But go read Leviticus chapter 7, read Leviticus chapter 22, learn a little bit about the sacrifices of thanksgiving. What is it about the sacrifices of thanksgiving that is intriguing to me is this. The sacrifices of thanksgiving involved a meal. Verse 18 says this, They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Verse 22, the instruction to them as they are healed by the word of God is, Go have a meal. The very person who had loathed food to the point where they were on death's doorstep is now to once again enjoy the life-giving nourishment of a meal. This is the grace and the mercy and the compassion of God on his people. 
He draws the fool to himself who has loathed food and he feeds him. But the ultimate feeding is, as we see, God's word. The word by which we live. Verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships. Doing business on the great waters, they saw the deeds of the Lord. His wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and they staggered like drunken men. And they were at wit's end. This last one, I think, is going to surprise some of you. It's the ambitious. And some of you are right now, you're going, that's not like the others. That's not like the wanderer or the rebel or the fool who we can look and we can see the folly, frankly, of their ways. Now, if by ambition we simply mean to set a goal and work diligently towards fulfilling that goal, okay, then that is not wrong in Scripture. God is not against setting a goal. He is not against fulfilling a goal. He is not against ambition in the sense that we are working hard or working diligently. But please understand for a moment, okay, that ambition in Scripture is always a vice. It is never a virtue. Because ambition is always the stepping stone to the promotion of oneself, to the glory of oneself. Look at me. Look what I've done. Look what I accomplished in my strength, in my courage, in my dealings. James chapter 3, verse 14 says this, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Now, some of you are like, but there's a qualifier there. It says selfish ambition. Well, guess what? In Greek, it's one word, and it's the Greek word erethia, and it means ambition. It's the same thing. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition. One word in Greek, ambition. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Ambition is a stepping stone. It's a step stool to the promotion of oneself. And we live in a society that celebrates the kind of ambition that promotes self, doesn't it? Isn't that the heart of what social media is all about? Don't forget to like my post. Don't forget to subscribe to me. Don't forget to follow me. If you like what you see, self-promotion, ambition, Look at me. Look what I did. Look what I accomplished. You see what ambition is. Look at, look at Psalm 107. It says this. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the what? It doesn't say on the water. On the great waters. They actually thought they could tame them. I can imagine them striking up their deals, shaking hands, signing paperwork, marching down to the ship. Oh, man, when we get back from this trip, you know how good this is going to be? It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome, man. People are just going to celebrate what we did. We're going to have all this stuff. It's, this is going to be the outcome. They're like the people in James chapter 4. 
Now, James warns them. He says this, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And you get a sense with these men. They're going down. God's not against business. He's not against success in business. But they are going down to do business, and they think they have tamed the great waters, and they failed to acknowledge and realize that in a moment, God could calm up the sea, call up the sea into a tempest. For he commanded, and he raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. Remember that courage? We're going to go out on the great sea. Where's that courage now? And they reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at wit's end. That last statement is powerful in Hebrew. It means their wisdom was swallowed up. That vast deposits that they'd made into the bank and their credit card came up empty. All of the payments they made to the university and it couldn't guarantee the job or the outcome that they desired. All of the political policies that they passed couldn't prevent a pandemic. All of their preparations could not stop the damage of a hurricane. There's a point at which we have to understand that all human wisdom comes up vastly short. And so everything we do, we rely upon the grace, the mercy of a holy God. And so we say, if the Lord wills, one theologian puts it this way. He says, the storm shakes us into understanding that we live, and I'll add this, and we succeed by God's administration and permission, not by our ambition. Please understand that. It's hard to hear, but that's the truth. That's what he says here. God calls up the sea, and it throws their courage and melts away all of their resources. Verse 28. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. The waves of the sea were hushed, and they were glad that the waters were quiet. You better believe they were glad. And he brought them to their desired haven. God takes the ambitious, and he brings them to peace. He takes them from staggering, from courage in self, into the peace that can only be found in no other name than the name that is Jesus. The one who can give us a peace that surpasses all understanding. And so that they don't have to chase continually after all that the world has to offer and all that the world has to give. But they can actually rest content with what God has 
graciously provided peace. God brings them, we're told, to their desired haven, which sounds like they get what they want, but God in his restoring also transforms our minds and our desires, and so their desired haven becomes the haven that God would have them to have, and it also means a safe harbor. They were on a stormy sea, and they are at now what? Peace of a safe harbor. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. I said it earlier. I've said it again, okay? God's steadfast love is the springboard to our gratitude. When we see it, when we recognize it, when we know it, it gives us strength to actually be thankful no matter what life may hold, no matter what life brings. Look at verse 33. There is a turn that happens in the psalm. He turns rivers into deserts. This is speaking of God. Springs of water into thirsty ground. A fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns deserts into pools of water. A parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell. And they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and they plant vineyards. And they get a fruitful yield. By, get this word, his blessing. They multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminished. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction, and he makes their families like flocks. Do you see in there this reality that God is the God who reverses things? He is the God of reversals. He can turn a desert into water. He can turn a river into a desert. But what you have to see here is that God is working in the midst of all of his creation to accomplish all of the things that he would accomplish for his people. And so for the evil, he will show justice. For the righteous, he will deliver. He was active in humbling us in the midst of our iniquity, was he not? In bringing us to the point where we, like those four characters, would cry out to the Lord. He may have, at some point in our lives, turned our river into a desert. So that we would cry. But we also understand that he turns the desert into a pool of water so that we can be blessed. This is God actively working in his world for his glory and for the good of his people. His sovereign nature here. Verse 42. The upright see it and are glad and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Okay, Wickedness does not love, like the steadfast love of God that delivers people. It doesn't. The upright see it and are glad. Wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise. A few of us in this room right now actually want to be wise, right? Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Let them consider the steadfast love of 
the Lord. What is it that makes the righteous glad? It's the steadfast love of the Lord. That's what makes the righteous glad. God's activity in this world on our behalf. It makes us glad. What is it that we attend to, that we consider, that we meditate upon? It's the steadfast love of the Lord. That's what we are to dwell upon as children of God. This is what we consider. So what is it about the steadfast love of the Lord that allows it to be a springboard to our thanksgiving? How is it that the steadfast love of the Lord springs us into thanksgiving? No matter what life brings. Well, there's at least a few things here. The first thing we see is this, that God's steadfast love hears and responds. You saw the refrain. They cried to the Lord and he, somebody say it, delivered them from their trouble or from their distress. God's, in his steadfast love, hears us when we cry. But he doesn't just hear us in some distant place and go, oh, okay. He actually responds for our good. That's how God works in the world. God is not like a political figure who says, oh, yeah, I'm listening. I hear you but can't actually do anything for our need. He is not this creator who created everything and then just set it into the motion and then just watches it like, hmm, yeah. He is intimately caring for all of his people. He intimately listens to all of our cries to him, and he actually responds to our pleas, to our cries, when in humility we recognize for a moment that our wisdom isn't sufficient to get us out of our predicament, and we need him. And we cry, he hears, he responds, and that should make us thankful because we do not serve a God who is helpless. We serve a God who is all-powerful and intimately cares and loves us enough to respond. The second thing we see is this. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Do you believe that? How long? Forever. Forever. What's the significance of this reality that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever? Well, we're told in Scripture that he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Psalm 139 tells us that he knit us together in our mother's womb, that he numbered our days, knowing the days of our lives. You want to know about God's steadfast love for you? Okay, look to eternity past and see that he had you on his mind before the foundations of the world. Think about that for a moment. All the way up till this moment, and he already has planned for you to see him and stand with him face to face in all eternity. And so if his steadfast love has begun in eternity past and it carries forward to eternity and future, then that means that right now in this moment, 
God's steadfast love is still acting on my behalf and on your behalf. Praise the Lord for that reality. God's steadfast love actually does endure forever. In 1 John chapter 4, we have a famous verse, and the famous verse says this, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he, what? First loved us and sent his son, Jesus Christ, as the propitiation for our sins. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, reminds us that God, in his foreknowledge, delivered his son to die on a cross at the hands of sinful men because it was his determined plan. God intended that you and I would come to faith in his son, Jesus Christ, from eternity past. And his love carries forth to the present and on into the future. And so no matter what life might hold right now, no matter what storms or tempests may be thrown around us, we understand that God's love is enduring, and that is reason for what? Gratitude. Right now, in the present moment, where we currently sit. God's steadfast love spurs us to gratitude. Third, God's steadfast love has endless reach. Did you catch, capture that in this psalm? North, south, east, west, every tribe, tongue, and nation, wanderers, rebels, fools, and the ambitious. God can gather all kinds of people from all kinds of places to himself. And not only can he, but he actually does. If we're humbly honest for just a moment, if God could gather me and redeem and restore me to himself, then he can get anybody. It takes a little humility to acknowledge that reality. But when we understand it, it's significant because it can encourage us. Because maybe you have a son or a daughter or a family member or a friend. And you might say, as you, I was speaking, you might be like, man, they are wandering. They are a rebel. They are a fool. They are ambitious and they're chasing after the things of this world. And they think they have no need of God. You want to know something? He can reach them too. And so we pray, because ultimately it's going to take an act of God, yes? And we declare, verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord, what? Say so. We declare the steadfast love of the, of the Lord to them. But in the end, we pray because we trust that God, in his sovereign reign, can actually draw wanderers, rebels, fools, and the ambitious to himself, deliver them, and restore them. And so we have hope because we know that's the God we serve. And we give thanks that he hears, heard our cry when we were in distress and that he hears our cry of help for them and that when they come to the place where God humbles them and they cry out to the Lord, he will what? He will hear. 
steadfast love of the Lord has endless reach. The steadfast love of the Lord, I said it already multiple times, is the springboard to our gratitude. Verse 1 says it. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Why? His steadfast love endures forever. Verse 43. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider what? The steadfast love of the Lord. Verse 8. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Verse 15, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Verse 21, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Verse 31, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. If I have this one thing, and there is no more certain reality than the enduring steadfast love of the Lord on our behalf, if I have this one thing, then I have all that I ever need. Can you say that? Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, but whatever gain I had, whatever I gain I had, whatever I accomplished, whatever I, I got in this life, and he had accomplished a lot. In case you want to know, read the beginning of Philippians chapter 3. I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain what? Christ. Because in Christ, we see the whole redemptive plan of God to restore and redeem people to himself come to its culmination, to its fulfillment. Such that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Just had a verse pop into my head, and I'm going to turn there here. It says this. Paul's praying for the church in Ephesus, and I think it's a reasonable way to end this message. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Okay, that's his prayer. How is this going to happen? That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Length, breadth, height, depth. You cannot exhaust the knowledge of the steadfast love of the Lord which endures forever. You want a springboard to gratitude this week. This month, this season, 2020 as a year, begin to search and attempt to exhaust your understanding of the steadfast love of the Lord. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. We thank you for Psalm 107, Lord, that it can restore our souls, that it can illumine our eyes. Lord, we thank you for Psalm 107 that it proclaims with 
no uncertainty, the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever, that it gives us reason to hope, it gives us reason to be grateful and, and, and thankful for all you are and all you have done and continue to do. Lord, we thank you. Even in the midst of a pandemic season where economics are uncertain and uh, so much is going on in life and family things have been thrown us that, at us and school decisions and, and all the craziness of life that we could have never predicted, Lord. We thank you that we know that in your steadfast love, you are still ruling, reigning, listening, and reaching. Lord, we thank you that ultimately you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross that through him we might be forgiven of our sins, drawn back from wandering, rebelling, foolish pursuits and ambitious activity that neglected you and brought into home as a people of God, as your children. It's in your name we pray. Amen.